This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Vincent Juice. He's the author of Urban Dwellings, Haitian Citizenships, Housing, Memory, and Daily Life in Haiti, published in 2022 by Rutgers University Press. This book thinks about housing as a way to understand many things about everyday life for Haitians. It's about the ways the built environment shapes relationships and well-being. In this interview, we talk about the idea of dwelling, the research process, and the ways that people in Haiti create meaningful lives as they confront adversity. Here's our conversation. Vincent, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. As a way to begin, can you tell us about how you came to this particular set of questions surrounding citizenship and the built environment in Haiti? Before the book is actually coming from uh, from me settling in Mississippi with my wife in, uh, in 2004. Uh, we worked in Louisiana and uh, started to inquire about the history of the place where we're in, especially Natchez, Mississippi, uh, where you have a lot of antebellum houses, uh, plantation houses, but also uh, in the built environment, a lot of shotgun houses and uh, smaller vernacular houses. And I was very intrigued, um, not by the plantation houses, but mainly by the, the smaller kinds that you would find along the Mississippi River. Um, so coming from France, also in Louisiana, I, I was intrigued by, by the history of an ancient French colony in Natchez, Mississippi, the, 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 the native populations were wiped out by, by the French in the 18th century. Uh, th- there was a violent history of, of slavery, of slave trading also in that region, um, where the French were highly influential. And when you start digging about the history of uh, of the built environment and of food and of language in Louisiana, all the all the path lead back to Haiti, um, because, for instance, in 1809, more than 10,000 uh, refugees from Saint-Domingue, Haitian people, uh, settled in New Orleans and brought with them, of course, their uh, the culture and the architecture and the music. Uh, so that that's how I started to to think about Haiti, uh, especially because I had a, a strange notion of Haiti. I could not visualize what was there. Um, and when the when the earthquake in 2010 happened, um, I became even more intrigued. So I went there in 2012 to mainly look at the vernacular buildings that were uh, still standing, the old houses and um, 
what I noticed is that my interest also for houses was more um, an interest of what people were doing with houses. It was not just about the built environment and the history of the houses, but many of the people who used and dwell in those houses. Um, and talking with people, you quickly realize that what we call a house in Haiti or a household is not just a, a shelter or a material feature, uh, but there is a whole set of social infrastructures uh, that are very important um, at the neighborhood level, at the family level, um, that is woven around those houses. So I guess that this question of citizenship and of belonging came when I was inquiring about the history of houses. And when talking about the houses, people talk not just about the walls around themselves, but they, they talk many about themselves, about the country, about what they did for a living and how these houses were part of their own lives. So the word dwellings, which uh, is part of the title, um, runs through the book as a foundational way of understanding a set of practices and spaces. What does dwelling mean to you? And more importantly, really, what does it mean to the people in the book? Yes. So um, when I was there for the first time in 2012, what, what happened um People were living in 10 camps. Uh, you also had USAID, for instance, and other big organizations that were offering very expensive uh, temporary shelters. These shelters um, looked like houses, but they were made either of plywood or plastic, um, and they were not suited for the climate at all. Uh, plus, uh, like Mark Schuller showed in his book, Humani Humanitarian Aftershocks, uh, he has a very good analysis of that, of that phenomenon of the temporary shelters. It displays people from their neighborhoods. Um, so when we talk about the reconstruction of Port-au-Prince, I was there two years, a year and a half after the earthquake. Um, what really surprised me is that Port-au-Prince, the inner city, has never been rebuilt even to this day um, and that people were displaced in shelters and a shelter is not a dwelling so again when I talked with people who were displaced by by the earthquake and living in dire conditions in those temporary shelters um, almost everyone told me that the money that was spent those, on those temporary shelters could have helped them uh, to relocate in their former neighborhoods and to, to be with their network of friends and with family members. Um, so the idea of dwelling is very different from the idea of finding a shelter. When we talk about houses, uh, when we talk about housing, sorry, um, it's not just, you know, having a roof over your head. Uh, what people were talking about mainly was the type of socialities also that came with living in downtown Port-au-Prince. Um, it, it comes also with, with memories. So this is the idea of creating a home. Um, but in Haiti, like I described in the book, um, what is very important with, with houses and what I think I call dwelling is also taking outside of the house. Uh, it's surrounding the house. It's all those small-scale economies that are built uh, in these uh, domestic settings. Um, so it's simply talking, you know, 
with people um, and, and seeing that you cannot cater to a housing crisis by coming from the United States with materials from Home Depot or whatever uh, and building shelters in random places, but um, place matter. Um, and like I show in a book with the, the story of my friend, Clomen Fiamma, uh, even though her house was destroyed, she would come back to these neighborhoods to conduct her business and to try to rebuild her dwelling over there. So what was important for her was, again, the, the, the network of friends, uh, a network of solidarity that was there. Um, so in a way, thinking about the earthquake and the post-disaster landscape and belonging at the same time, uh, how Haitians should have been included in the reconstruction of the country, they were not at all. Uh, this idea of dwelling became very important, uh, meaning thinking about houses that are uh, culturally sound and um, where people can rebuild their, their lives as they see fit. The book is really open about your research process, which I really enjoyed. So what was your research process? How did you get people to trust you? How did you realize who to talk to, who was available, who wasn't? Uh, yes, that's a good question. It's always tricky. Uh, I, I guess what I don't see in the book is that many people close their doors or uh, uh, refuse to, to talk with me at times. Uh, so it, it's not very easy and it's kind of a strange job also to sometimes, you know, you knock at the door of a house that you find interesting and you ask questions about architecture and who lives there and what is happening. It's not, it's not always easy. Um, my, my research process, I guess, is very collaborative. Um, so I had a good chance of uh, working with anthropologist Laura Wagner, who was already in Haiti since 2008. Uh, she introduced me to her network of friends, and uh, I guess you can call it the snowball effect, that through Laura's network, um, I, I, I met also um, friends of her friends, uh, so the first time that I, I was in Port-au-Prince in 2012, um, I, I'm really grateful for, for, for what Laura did. She sort of kick-started my research. Uh, and then, of course, I came back for, for a longer time. So I spent about 12 months between 2013 and 2014 over there. Uh, and by then, I had already uh, a, a good network of friends. Uh, but it was in 2013 that... Um, that I met Alain Joseph, uh, who's my main partner in the book, with whom I did quite a bit of fieldwork. So Alain is an art historian uh, who works in several schools of the capital as an uh, art history teacher. Uh, and we were both very interested by the history of uh, the old houses of Port-au-Prince, especially that they stood in a city where uh, most landmarks had collapsed. So the goal of Alain, because the, the, the houses that I'm talking about, whether they are big or small, uh, even presently are being destroyed um, by people who are rebuilding new houses or sometimes by the state that can bulldoze entire neighborhoods, uh, we felt that it was urgent to, um, to photograph, to document the history of those houses. And I guess that working with, uh, with Alain Joseph 
um, to be introduced to his networks of friends uh, created a good dynamic. Uh, we worked extensively together. He had his own project of doing a catalog of uh, um, urban art history I mean, uh, through photographs and text, and he's still working on that book. Uh, and he helped me with a few of my projects. So I think that uh, this collaboration with Alan was was key. And then, like many anthropologists, I guess, the, the fact that you are going back to the same places, the same little cafes or restaurants or public plazas, or uh, I befriended booksellers. Um, I'm a collector also of Caribbean music, so I entered groups of Caribbean, uh, I mean, uh, of Haitian men who were collecting music. And uh, with time, especially, you, you build a, a network of friends. What was important to me as well is that, as you can see in the book, I don't have that many interviews and especially that many recorded interviews. Um, I work mainly with live histories, such as the, the history of Clomen that we see here or my friend Whitnell. Uh, and it takes a long time to establish um, friendship and trust and before we can talk about deeply personal issues. Um, so mainly the people that I worked with are people that I know very well, people that I'm still in touch with, people that I'm still working with today. Um, and it's not it's not a big group of people. Of course, I talked with many, many people, um, state officials and so on and so forth. Uh, but for me, it was key to uh, to create those relationships, not only for the sake of research, but it's the strange thing about ethnography. You, you At some point, you don't know what is daily life and, and research it blends. And I think that my friends knew about that as well. So it was always funny to, um, you're more or less like a spy at some times. Um, yeah, but the, what's nice um, is that the collaborative um, sort of your collaborative ethos comes through really nicely in the book. And I, I you know, um, in, for full disclosure, I'm, I'm a, a very big fan and um, colleague of Laura Wagner's work and of her, you know, as a researcher and everything. So I'm, I'm really glad that you got to connect with her there. Um, and I, I'm, I would love to um, speak with you more about Clomin. Um, towards the end, because she really starts to st begin, begins to loom large at the end of the book. Um, uh, but I want to go back to the beginning and think about um, the way that you organized the book. So a lot of it, the, the book, um, it kind of circles around the, the, the earthquake, as so many things in Haiti do these days. You can't avoid talking about it. But you do begin... Um, you do begin with some processes that preceded it and are ongoing. Um, and it seems like the issue... Of housing is one of these, um, one of these, um, one of these things that that had a kind of ongoing history beforehand, and so you begin with these efforts at industrialization and make the argument that they were a disaster for the people of Haiti. So, so um, can you tell us about that? How how was how was the process of industrialization such a such a bad thing for for ways of dwelling? Uh, yes. So. Uh... Of course, the, the, the book is about dwelling and houses, but the book is also about domicide, uh, meaning the systematic uh, destruction of, um, of homes. And this is an ongoing process. 
Um, so let me start with what is going on right now in the United States. A few months ago in Texas, um, we had those horrible images of immigration officers uh, chasing Haitian immigrants at the border. And there is indeed uh, a, a crisis of immigration in, in Haiti. People are emigrating right now uh, at a fast pace because of the crisis. But one of the crises that is still ongoing today is the crisis of industrialization that leads to the displacement and to the destruction of, of people's homes, of people's farms, of people's lively, uh, livelihoods. Uh, to give you a quick example, it was in uh, last February, um, Coca-Cola decided to uh, run a stevia plantation in, in Haiti. Uh, they got in touch with a famous um, businessman from Haiti who helped them finding a place to, to, uh, to open their um, stevia plantation. It's in Savandian. And what happened as usual, uh, as usual is that uh, the land was grabbed from farmers who have been farming that land since at least 1986. Uh, a great deal of them also were women who were running a co-op. They, they grew peanuts. They were making nutritious food. Um, and this is ongoing still in the, in the whole country. So I'm talking about a famous U.S. corporation, but sometimes it can be also that a municipality will be the hospital. This was the case a few months ago in Terrier Rouge in northern Haiti, where the, the book starts in the true du Nord region. Um, for building a hospital, the, the municipality seized, uh, grabbed uh, 7,000 acres of land and displaced once again thousands of farmers. Um, so this process has been happening before the earthquake. And I think increased after the earthquake um, because U.S. Special Envoy Bill Clinton and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had that plan that they called uh, Building Back Better, um, where the centerpiece was building economic growth by uh, industrializing Haiti. So the book starts 200 miles away from uh, from the disaster-stricken region of Port-au-Prince uh, in northern Haiti, in a Cape Haitian region where uh, a giant industrial park was built with uh, some of the really funds, some of the funds that were meant for the reconstruction of the country. Um, and again, the building of this industrial park is to me a disaster. Not long ago, two months ago, um, the people who work in the factories of this industrial park uh, park uh, uh, demonstrated in the streets of Caracol because they are receiving very meager salaries. They work in terrible conditions. Plus, building that park in Caracol, which is a very fertile uh, region, displaced uh, 442 families of farmers. So we have that cycle that is happening again and again since the, since the U.S. occupation of Haiti that started in 1915, and it feels as as if the, the, the U.S. occupation of Haiti never never ended, actually. So housing is uh, one of the ways through which you argue, and other people have argued as well, that there are no natural disasters. There are only political disasters, right? And you can really see that through the earth. So how was housing affected by the earthquake? So about 75% of the built environment in, uh, in the Port-au-Prince region was either flattened by the earthquake 
or uh, permanently damaged. So if we think about Port-au-Prince, it's a city that was built for a population of about 100,000 people, and we have today maybe three to four million people living in the city of Port-au-Prince and its surrounding. Uh, so the city grew really, really fast, especially started in the 1970s, 1980s. Uh, people from the countryside started to flock to Port-au-Prince because this is where you found better jobs and where you had the possibility of sending your children to good high schools. This is where you had hospitals. Um, so it's an extremely centralized country. All the services, the administration, the, the Port-au-Prince Port is the political and economic center of the country. And the earthquake reinforced uh, actually uh, the, the central position of Port-au-Prince because most of the, of the NGOs that flocked to Haiti uh, after the earthquake uh, settled, uh, settled shop in Port-au-Prince and offered sometimes free services um, in the city. Um, so... I think that this, this idea of centralization that started a long time ago during the, the, the colonial period uh, when, when France ruled over Haiti and decided to make Port-au-Prince the, 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 the capital of the country, uh, since then it has been a problem. If you think about Port-au-Prince, there was an earthquake in 1751, there was an earthquake in 1770 uh, that flattened the city twice. It's not the first time that there are massive earthquakes in Port-au-Prince. Um, we know that it is not a place that is suited for building residences, but nonetheless, uh, this is the center of the country um, because of business interest. It's really the, 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 the place where the north and the south and the south of the country meet in the middle. Um, so, yes, the, the, the earthquake was not natural for several reasons. Uh, I mean, the, the, the disaster was not natural for, for several reasons. Uh, one, like I said, the, the centralization, uh, the demographic centralization and the high density uh, in Port-au-Prince led to this major disaster. Um, there are too many people who live crowded in uh, some of the neighborhoods in Port-au-Prince. Uh, and this is due once again to the centralization of service of everything that, that Haiti has to offer is in Port-au-Prince. This is why people would go there. Um, the second thing too is that since 1994 and since the return of President Aristide, um, Bill Clinton at the time pushed for structural reforms that were devastating also for, for the Haitian state. Um, so in 1994, 1995, we had what we call the Governor's Accord, um, which laid out uh, neoliberal policies that led, for instance, of the firing of 50% 50, uh, 50 of the state workforce. Um, so the state literally dwindled in size. Uh, and all of a sudden, you do not have engineers or you do not have uh, uh, state workers who can make sure that construction codes are being respected. Uh, you do not have people who can work on uh, urban planning, for instance. Uh, you have a meager police force that cannot enforce anything. So I think that the erosion of the state also in the 1990s uh, contributed 
to um, to really a sudden growth of Port-au-Prince and to uh, to a growth that was not really managed. So there, there are many elements that that contributed to the earthquake, um, but all of these elements, besides the the tremors themselves, uh, none of it were natural. It was um, the result of political decisions, of political centralization, mainly. The book has a really interesting kind of arc, narrative arc, that I was just thinking about. Um, you open with some, you know, stories of the ways that politics and um, economics really have devastated the ways of living of a lot of people. Um and then it, it gets a little bit more hopeful and a little bit more. You, you demonstrate also how, how um, people manage their circumstances and how they manage to thrive and how they manage to recreate their dwellings towards the end. We'll get to those. But um, one of the, the chapters that I found really, um, really fascinating and such the, the detail in which you go um, and you talk about this housing development in Casimir. Um, and it seems like they could not have done a worse job. Um, in terms of the shape of the houses, how people were imagined to live there, the lack of infrastructures, etc. How how did it end up that way? How was a, such a series of decisions made? It's it's actually a, a very complex question, and I think that uh, in a work of journalists like uh, Jake Johnston or Jonathan Katz, for instance. Uh, we would find more answers that, that I brought in the book. Uh, it's a story of corruption. Um, it's a story of mismanagement of, uh, of funds. And this is also the illusion, once again, that industrialization should drive the reconstruction of, of Port-au-Prince. Uh, so, by the way, historian, the historian uh, Claire Payton is, is working on, on those issues um, how construction firms uh, work during the Duvalier period, for instance, hand in hand with, with the state and um, um, how big construction projects could be a way to, uh, to launder money, pure and simple. So Casimir is a, is a neighborhood um, maybe 30 minutes north of Port-au-Prince. It's very isolated. It's in a desertic areas. You have cacti all over the place. Uh, they are about, it's a grid of small houses. There are some apartment buildings as well, all built with, um, with bad, mater bad materials, with bad concrete. Uh, the, the, the houses are already falling into ruins uh, today. Um, and we have this grid of about 1,200 houses, um, and about 30% of them have never been finished. The, the, the project there, so the, the project was launched, I believe, in 2011. Um, President Martelly at the time had, uh, had funds to rebuild a, a very important neighborhood uh, in downtown Port-au-Prince, the Fort Dimanche neighborhood. Uh, that, was, that, that money was meant to be used for that, to, to rebuild uh, this central neighborhood of Port-au-Prince. But instead... Uh, the prime minister and, and the president diverted the funds and spent uh, a great deal of money uh, hiring a Dominican firm that uh, belonged to uh, 
to a Dominican senator, Senator Felix Bautista, who, who overnight after the earthquake became a millionaire. Uh, he had no experience in construction, but he created two firms that built those projects. So uh, we have international funds that are used by the Haitian state. Uh, those funds are funneled to uh, a construction company from the Dominican Republic. And I guess that there was no master plan. I don't know where those, came, those plans came from because it's hopefully maladapted to the, the surrounding environment. Uh, thick concrete walls, um, low ceilings. One of my uh, friends called them uh, tifu, uh, little ovens. Um, it's, it's so hot at the end of the day over there that you don't have a choice but to sit outside. But when you sit outside, it's full of mosquitoes. So it's really not a pleasant place. Um, Plus, oddly enough, the plan was to have a factory coming there, but the factory never came. Uh, and for a number of years, up until 2015, 2016, you had many policemen who were patrolling that, 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 uh, that neighborhood, that, that little village, as they call it, uh, and maintaining discipline, making sure that people were paying their rents, but also making sure that people could not cultivate, uh, could not work in a garden or did not plant trees or did not do whatever they wanted with the house. They, they wanted to keep uh, that, that uh, I, I call these houses, it's like a, a field of storage unit. Um, they wanted to keep it as it is. Um, so it, it was really a strange setting. Uh, I believe that given the quality of the materials that it was uh, pretty cheap for the Dominican company to to build those houses, but the Haitian state spent about $80 million on that project, Um, but it doesn't match up with what we have on the ground. So I believe it's part of uh, the diversion of about $2 billion of uh, aid money, of aid funds by... uh, by the party that is still in power today, by uh, Martelly and his allies. Um, but since I wrote this chapter, the, the, the end of the story of Kazimi is a little more hopeful too. Uh, eventually, the, the, the police left. Um, the Haitian administrators do not live there anymore. And it's like the Haitian state has abandoned Kazimir. And people have taken over. And it's a much more lively place now. Um, Trees are growing, people are cultivating gardens, uh, they are building extra rooms of, on the roof of the houses, they are painting the, the houses as they see fit. Uh, it seems to, to, to have become a good place to live now. Um, so, yeah, that, that's... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm glad to hear the end of that story. And that's not the only neighborhood that you talk about. One of the things that happens in the book is you start to get a sense of the very different kinds of settings. And 
Um, in one chapter, you detail two neighborhoods, which are very almost, well, they are next to each other, right? Martisan and Olos. Um, and the contrast between them, as well as the role of the Haitian-run NGO Focal, which I'm probably not pronouncing properly. No, no, that's it, Focal, um, yes. <laughs> um, but so how does, how does the contrast of these two neighborhoods, you talk about infrastructural citizenship, which I thought was a very uh, compelling uh, formulation. So how does, how does putting those two neighborhoods against one another tell us about infrastructural citizenship and, and especially the role of the, this NGO? Uh, yes, so um, it, it was actually a difficult chapter to write because I um, I'm not working with one of of uh, one of the informants that that I'm talking about in in, in this chapter Evans. Um, we we had let's say a disagreement uh, at some point of the fieldwork and it, it was kind of strange. But I uh, I worked in his neighborhood and with him for for. Um, for quite a long time, and as I said in a book, I met him as uh, at an um, NGO camp base. Uh, he was working as uh, a security over there. Uh, he was very bored with his job, and he wanted to show me uh, where he was living, which was far away from his job. Uh, he wanted to show me that he could not afford to live in uh, in downtown Port-au-Prince, that he had no choice with the kind of salary that he had. Uh, to live at the outskirts of the city. So Martisan and Bolos are at the southern tip of, of Port-au-Prince. Uh, and it's true that it's pretty far removed from, from the economic nerves of, uh, of the city. Um, because, again, so many NGOs came in Port-au-Prince in 2010. People rented uh, places in, uh, in, in downtown Port-au-Prince. So it became, for many people, uh, the, 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 the rent prices went up and people had no choice but to settle in, in the neighborhoods that I talk about. Uh, so my friend Evans was uh, living in Bolos um, and living actually in, um, in a pretty great neighborhood with good neighbors. Um, it's, uh, it's a very pleasant neighborhood. It's located on a hill, so the, during the summer the wind blows. Um, and what was very surprising there is that they, it, it is cut by a ravine, by a small ditch uh, that is supposed to act as, a, as an open air sewage system, but it's completely clogged uh, by, um, by trash. Uh, so he wanted to show me that and he wanted me to, to pay attention to this problem because for him and his neighbor, uh, the, the, the humid trash was bringing mosquitoes uh, during whenever you had a heavy rains, the, the trash, I mean, the, the ravine would overflow and uh, the dirty water and the trash would get into houses. And that, that made uh, the, the, the life of people living there uh, absolutely miserable. And this is something that you see quite a lot. In, you know, it's not unique to that neighborhood, to Bolas in Port-au-Prince. Um, the, the, the social geography of Port-au-Prince is, uh, is very peculiar. Uh, on the top of the hills, you have the richer people and the, the trash of these people trickles down to the poorer, low-income neighborhood, uh, neighborhoods that are located uh, along the shore of, uh, of uh, the Bay of Port-au-Prince. Um, so Bolos is such a neighborhood. It's not the, the, the only neighborhood that has this trash problem. Um, but when you cross the street from 
Bolos 4e Avenue, there is a very important road. And under this road, there is uh, uh, most of the potable water that is distributed to Port-au-Prince is coming from under that road. It's, it's a very uh, important place in Port-au-Prince. It's called Route des Dalles. Uh, when you cross that street, you end up in the neighborhood of Martissan. And Martissan is completely different. It's radically different. Uh, so one of my best friends in Haiti, Widnell, uh, lived there at the time when I met him in 2013. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in his house in Martissan, a lot of time with him. And um, he's a truck driver and a mechanic. Uh, at times, he's a chauffeur as well. So I drove along quite a lot with him. He showed me many places in that neighborhood. Um, Martissan is peculiar because the, the, the Haitian NGO Focal, um, so the book is very critical of NGOs, of course, but I must say that uh, Focal is quite unique. Uh, the, the president of Focal is former uh, Prime Minister Michel Pierre-Louis. Uh, it's an organization that is mainly run by Haitian women and that is very, very efficient in many domains. Uh, it is more or less replacing the Minister of Culture, but not only, they, uh, they do urban planning projects. So starting in 2007, three years before the earthquake, they managed to preserve uh, a patch of forest in the middle of Port-au-Prince. And Martissan is like a beacon of light for, for the city because there is this magnificent uh, park, the Martissan Park that is there. Uh, and in order to preserve the park and to make sure that people would not build uh, houses over there, uh, because in the park you have these important uh, springs, uh, you have uh, the, the clean water that flows in the whole of Port-au-Prince, so it's very important to, to keep this place clean in order for, for people to, uh, to go along with the creation of the park. Uh, Mar uh, the Focal had the excellent idea to work with them uh, to um, better their lives in the neighborhood and mainly to better the infrastructure of the neighborhood. The way it was made was uh, very organic. Uh, there were co uh, popular comedies created and uh, people living there got together and uh, set up the priorities, such as uh, building roads, building bridges, uh, cleaning the ravines, and so on and so forth. Uh, but Focal did not take a top-down approach. Uh, the approach that they took is, uh, is very peculiar for, for an NGO, unfortunately, but I think it's a good model. Uh, they connected uh, the people living in Martissan with, uh, with the state. Uh, so people worked directly with state agency for uh, uh, trash collection, for instance, uh, with the state agency that is responsible for, for the DINEPA for water, for electricity, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the result, 10 years after the, 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 the project, are, um, are, are pretty amazing. Madison is uh, it's a decent neighborhood. It's a clean neighborhood uh, with this magnificent park. There is a botanical garden. There is a public library over there educational programs. It's a neighborhood that could function well. Um, so I contrast those two neighborhoods to show, uh, yes, this, this idea of infrastructural citizenship, meaning that uh, belonging is really a matter, of, um, a matter of connection, not just social connections or institutional connections, like I talked about people getting in touch with state agencies, but um, 
ju just getting potable water in your in your house, the 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 pipes and the, the wires that link us in 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 one way or another uh, are what I call uh, a social and material infrastructure. Uh, we, I don't think that we can dissociate the two, and that that's where. Um, for the people that I interviewed in Martissan, and especially my, my friends, uh, Soraya and, and, and Widnell, um, this, was, uh, this was transformative. Uh, it triggered in them, you know, political hopes. Uh, they were a lot more civically engaged in their neighborhood. They, they were very invested in, in all the projects that were happening. And uh, that was a good feeling for them. Uh, to see that their neighborhood was on the upswing. But in contrast, when you cross the Route des Dalles and you go to Bolos, uh, you find the complete opposite. People feel completely abandoned by the state, but also by NGOs. Uh, and it's even more than that. They are in a state of abjection. Uh, they feel that they are uh, actively disconnected from uh, the grid of services um, and from institutions uh, that they need to, to live on their own. Um, they managed to get their ravine uh, cleaned a couple of times, but since then the, the ravine, we, we have the same, the same exact problem. So showing, showing this also, I, I show how piecemeal urban planning is creating new fractures in Port-au-Prince, uh, new classes of first-class, second-class citizen in a way. Uh, the, the, the people who cannot have that, that connection, who cannot have basic public services such as trash collection, access to clean water, access to electricity, um, these people are, yes, disconnected from, from, uh, from, the, from their citizenship. Earlier on, you mentioned this idea of vernacular architectures. And in the book, you talk about two specific kinds of architectural styles, the gingerbread house and the shotgun house. Um, and you also talk about how each of these styles is intrinsic and important to dwelling, not just to living, but to thriving. So can you talk about those a little bit? Yes. Um, so in, in the first place, I... I... I did field work in Port-au-Prince to, to study especially the gingerbread houses. Um, after the earthquake, it's, uh, the, 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 the thing that struck me is that uh, the great majority of those houses, so we're talking about 400 Victorian mansions that were built um, between, I would say, you know, the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, a lot of them had a wood structure, uh, they were uh, bourgeois houses as well. Um, most of them, you know, belong to uh, upper middle class or, or uh, to, to rich families of doctors, of lawyers, and, and so on and so forth. Um, it, it was striking to see that these houses could sustain uh, such a massive earthquake, uh, and they sustained the earthquake pretty well. So some of the houses that I visited were, were, uh, were damaged, uh, but not to the point that you cannot repair them. Um, they are built also with light materials. Uh, you know, uh, it can be uh, uh, wood, um, steel roofs, th those kinds of things. So when they collapse, uh, usually they, 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 they don't kill the people that are in them. Um, so 
when I arrived to Haiti, I had the same feeling that I had in, in Natchez, Mississippi, uh, where you have the, the, the big plantation houses or the, 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 the rich people houses. And the gingerbread houses are, are very important for, for the, for the in, in terms of uh, cultural heritage for Haiti. And I praise again the, 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 the NGO Focal uh, for the efforts for, for, for preserving those, um, those houses. Uh, but like I said, like in Natchez, Mississippi, it was the smaller kind of gingerbread houses that you see all around Haiti, actually, uh, that, that really piqued my interest. So I talk a lot about shotgun houses that are ubiquitous in, uh, in the United States, in the South. Uh, they are usually uh, depicted as African-American dwellings. Uh, you can see them in, for instance, in a city like New Orleans. Um, well, today in New Orleans, if you want to buy shotgun houses, you need four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. Um, they, 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 they went up in value. Uh, but the, the, the shotgun houses or smaller vernacular houses uh, had the same features that you find on the gingerbread houses. Uh, so vernacular architecture is when you build with local materials and when you build also, um, it's a form of architecture made by the locals. It's, it's anonymous oftentimes, and it's really well adapted to the environmental and climatic uh, conditions. Um, what I found out while doing research, uh, most people will tell you that uh, the shotgun houses are a small size version of the gingerbread houses, but it's the contrary. Um, the shotgun houses, you find them in Haiti already in the 18th century, and they would be the basis actually of, uh, of the bigger Victorian mansions, the gingerbread houses that I'm talking about. So it's first and foremost um, a type of rural dwelling. That's the dwelling that you find in the countryside. Um, and it's really well suited to the island. Like I said, it's built with light materials and with uh, carpentry techniques that allows these houses to sustain earthquakes. Usually they have steep roofs for heavy rains. Um, they are built on a platform, so there is no problems with floods. They have high ceilings and they have uh, really neat ventilation systems. Uh, you don't need electricity to be in a cool house, and people figure that out. So you, you find uh, those, uh, those qualities in, in both the, the bourgeois houses, but also in the, in the smaller rural version of them. Um, and we need to, to, to remember that Port-au-Prince um, is mainly comprised of people who hail from the countryside, and the people of the countryside brought their vernacular architecture with them it was well suited for a dense city as well because shotgun houses are narrow. Um, they have a front porch that enables also people to have a private public life. Uh, the, the, the porch of those shotgun houses is usually used for, for business activities. So looking at those houses, you, you find um, it's not only about the, the built environment and the, the, the fact that they are well adapted to the environment, but it's also a, a very good house, I would say, for um, the Haitian way of life. Um, and most of the day is being spent 
and the, the galleries of those big houses or, or the front porch of those small houses in the semi-private space of the house. Um, so it's a house where being outside of the walls and being surrounded by, by the shade is very important. Um, those are houses that are really well connected to one another in a way. Um, they create a maze within Port-au-Prince, small little alleys um, that are quite convenient for, for, for people as well. So the, we circle around to Clomen, finally, uh, and she is a central figure in the last part of the book. And you use her, I think, or you um, her, her, her way of living really details the way that these houses um, and these dwellings um, create and strengthen relationships and the ways that daily life and the space that's inhabited are so intrinsically and deeply related to one another. And you also talk about the, the, the role of gender and how that, how that works as well. So um, how did you come to, how did you come to that realization? How did you make her realize that, that she was going to be the central part of the last part of the book? That, that was evident from the get go in a way. So I, I started to hang out at Clement's house uh, in 2013, she, she was a friend of, uh, of my research partner, of, uh, of Alan Joseph. Um, she had a house in downtown Port-au-Prince, and um, the, on the front side of her courtyard, uh, she, um, she had tables and chairs, and you could, you could go and get the, uh, you could go there um, and drink a Coke or a Sprite or a beer in the shade of a tree, which is very convenient. It's a, Port-au-Prince is a very busy city. It's hard to find a place where you can sit down and write notes or just, you know, sit down and being outside and, and being with people. So it, it's mainly happening in private spaces. Uh, but, but the front courtyard of Clomen, like I said, is a semi-private space. Uh, she would allow uh, a select, selected clientele, and I was lucky enough to, um, uh, to be the friend of Alan, and she let me hang out over there. Uh, and over time, we talked a lot and we became friends. I first became friends with her sister, Monique, uh, who was selling mangoes every day over there. So um, I had that ritual around five o'clock to, to go there to eat mangoes and to hang out with them and with my friends. Um, and that's the way our friendship built up. Um, I think it was around March 2014 um, that we learned about the rumors that her house would be destroyed. Uh, so it was a shotgun house. And uh, that's also the reason that Alan brought me there, uh, because it was a good hangout spot, but because also uh, it was an interesting, um, inter it was interesting in terms of architecture. Uh, but in March, we, we learned that the whole area could be bulldozed by the state at any time. We didn't know when. We didn't know when it would happen. Um, and, uh, and my friend Clomen uh, became very, very depressed and very worried, as anyone would be when, when you learn that the house where you spend more than 20 years of your life where you were able to uh, welcome your family after the earthquake, the people who lost their, 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 their own houses. Um, um, this house was cherished by, by the Firma family. Um, so when we learned that it could be demolished, uh, it became urgent for Clomen 
she wanted to tell her story, the story of her house um, and why her house was so important to us and why it shouldn't be destroyed and why it was so stupid uh, from the part of the state and mainly how mean it was to uh, to destroy uh, what was not just her residence, but like I detail in the book, it was also her business place. Um, so we had two goals, actually, when we started to document her house and uh, her life history. Uh, one of the goals uh, was to uh, to raise funds so she, uh, she could pack up her belongings um, and move to another place. So we managed to raise a little bit of funds uh, by uh, creating together uh, um, a short biography and the story of her house. We did a GoFundMe and uh, we got a few hundreds of dollars. And when, when her house was demolished in, in May 2014, uh, with that money and with the help of friends, she was able to, to move to another house in Carrefour. Uh, in uh, southern Port-au-Prince, where she lives today. Um, the, that was a tough period, March, April, until the destruction of her house in May. Uh, I spent quite a lot of time with her. Uh, whenever she had time, she would sit down and, you know, we made several, we recorded several interviews. Um, and again, she, she made the point of, she really wanted to to have her story told. Uh, one thing that that I told her, um, it, it's a neighborhood, by the way, where you have the uh, the faculty d'ethnologie, so the, the the anthropology department of the the, the, the state university. People are uh, well acquainted with ethnographers; they know what we do. And uh, Clomen was not surprised with what I was doing, the, the type of uh, documenting that I was doing. Um, and I proposed to her to anonymize her in the book, but that's not something that she wanted. She uh, she wanted to have her name, the name of the people of her family, and her story to be uh, to be published. Uh, and it was important for her that her story would be told in English as well, uh, because as many people in Haiti, she feels that the United States need to know what is going on in Haiti before. Uh, they do any kind of interventions and before they support a state, a Haitian government that is destroying people's livelihoods. Um, so that's when we really started to talk about her house and how she used it, uh, how people in her, her family used it, how it was not just a house or just a, a place where she slept, but it was a place where she was conducting business as well. Uh, it was in the middle of the city. It was also convenient for her because uh, Clomen has th uh, three children. Uh, and at the time, Kira, her uh, youngest daughter, was uh, was eight years old. Uh, she was going to school. So working from home and uh, working with family members in and around her house uh, gave Clomen some flexibility. Uh, and that was very important. She could walk her daughter to school. She could pick her up. Uh, she could have a family life and a business life at the same time. Um, that, this is why domestic economies or female economies are so important. Um, we Usually, they are not considered as being part of the formal economy. But in Haiti, it's uh, working from home. 
and building businesses from, from domestic spheres uh, is a way for, for, for women who engage in, uh, in, in those small businesses uh, to gain autonomy, financial autonomy, but also uh, flexibility with their time. And um, since 1994 up to 2014, Clomen lived in complete independence and autonomy. Uh, she was very proud of the fact that she never asked anything from an NGO, from the state, that she was able to generate her own income. So did her husband who, walk, uh, who worked downtown and her brothers and sisters as well. So the house was very important because it was a family center, the center for, 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 for the family. It was a place where you conduct business. And when you conduct those types of small businesses, uh, you make very little money, but what is important is that you engage in mini meaningful social rela uh, relationships, um, that you are creating a, a, a solidarity network, and that's what Clomen talks about. Uh, it's not just a house, but also to be in the neighborhood with people that she has known for a long time. As she said, when she moved to that little uh, town, to Carrefour, um, her main concern is that in Carrefour, if anything is happening to her, if she doesn't have food, like she said, she would go hungry. Whereas in her, uh, in Monatuf, the neighborhood where she lived, uh, this would never happen to her. People would take care of her, would take care of her family, and she was able to take care also of, um, of her people over there. So that, that's what was lost when that neighborhood was demolished. Uh, it was not just shelters, once again, that, that, that were demolished, but dwellings and uh, 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 a very important network of social relationships and networks of solidarity. You've been very generous with your time. I have one last question before I let you go. Um, I'm wondering how the experience of researching and writing the book has changed your, if it's changed your approach to scholarship, and how has that sort of affected you're what you're working on at the moment um it, it was a long-term project of course uh, that that started before i did field work in 2000 uh in 2012 so it, it took about 10 years uh i think it reinfer it reinforced my my belief that um, cultural anthropology and, and 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 ethnography should be collaborative in nature um, something that, that, that is, I guess, perhaps peculiar with my book it, is that I have very long excerpts uh, of recorded interviews. Uh, usually you have tidbits or you have small paragraphs here and there, but um, uh, that, that, that's something that, that I would like to do more to, to, uh, to give space uh, in, in our ethnographies, more space for, for people to explain themselves. Uh, so first and foremost, I think it, it really reinforced my uh, my belief that ethnography is, uh, is a collaborative uh, activity, I would say. That's a great place to end. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Well, thank you for your time.